Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Gathering Ground, a podcast where with each new episode, a special guest, or sometimes lots of guests, and I explore what it looks like to thrive in the nonprofit landscape. We also look at issues and uh, talk about equity and inclusion a lot, which will be the case today. I'm Mary Morton. I'm president of Morton Group, LLC, a national consulting firm that operates in Chicago and works with clients nationwide. Our work is explored in great detail on our website at mortengroup.com. That's M-O-R-T-E-N-G-R-O-U-P.com. On November 10th, Morton Group hosted our first ever Ready Symposium. That's Racial Equity, Access, Diversity, and Inclusion. And we were thrilled to host over 200 registrants from the nonprofit, for-profit, and foundation fields, joining us from coast to coast. All of our proceeds for this event went to two very important Chicago Black-led organizations, Affinity Community Services and IC Stars. Our two-hour morning session included two workshops led by Morton Group's facilitators that gave our participants a glimpse into our ready action planning process and offered a sample of our three-hour session on identifying and addressing microaggressions. After a lunch break, we welcomed our guests back to hear from two, actually three, past Gathering Ground participants. Building Movement Project co-director Sean Thomas Breitfeld and author Pamela Newkirk. Sean presented data from the newest version of the Building Movement's project Race to Lead, Revisited. It's a look at the racial leadership gap in nonprofits. And Pamela presented on the content and issues discussed in her book, Diversity, Inc., The Failed Promise of a Billion Dollar Business. Following this segment, we welcomed three additional panelists from different areas of work for a roundtable conversation and to answer a few questions from our audience. We welcomed Woods Fund Chicago President Michelle Morales, who is returning to Gathering Ground. And we also welcomed Ronnie Patrick. Ronnie is the Director of the Division of Rehabilitation Services for the Illinois Department of Human Services. And we welcomed the new President and CEO for Shriver Center on Poverty Law. Audra Wilson. This was a fascinating and very informative conversation, and it was recorded to share with you, our listeners, on this episode of Gathering Ground. We hope you enjoy it. So first and foremost, I am going to um, introduce our first speaker for this afternoon, someone that I greatly admire and really appreciate all the work that his organization is doing. Uh, this is Sean Thomas Breitfeld, who is the co-director of the Building Movement Project. And I actually interviewed Sean uh, last year on Gathering Ground as well. And he is going to talk to us about Race to Lead. Um, this report, um, the second version of the report, if you will, and uh, updated data uh, from their initial report in 2016 is simply fascinating. And it really tells us what's happening with regard to the racial leadership gap, um, and, and, and particularly in, in nonprofits. And as I mentioned earlier, we'll have a chance to also then hear about what's happening in entertainment and higher ed, um, as well with our, our second speaker, Pamela Newkirk. Um, Sean has um, an extensive background in research and prior to joining movement, um, Building Movement Project, he spent a decade working in various roles at the Center for Community Change, where he developed training programs for grassroots leaders, coordinated online and grassroots advocacy efforts, and lobbied on a range of issues, including immigration reform, transportation equity, and anti-poverty programs. He is coming to us from New York, and I am going to turn it over to you, Sean, and so happy to have you join us. 
Thanks so much for that introduction and Mary, great to see you again. Uh, yeah, so I'm really excited to be with you all today and to share some of the findings from our Race to Lead Revisitor Report, which is the latest um, sort of big national report based on our data from the Race to Lead survey. And so to talk about the survey, uh, as was mentioned, we first surveyed the nonprofit sector on these issues of race and leadership in 2016. And we got more than 4,000 people from across the country to participate in that survey effort, answer questions about their own experiences working in the nonprofit sector. And so last year in 2019, we surveyed the field again, and this time more than 5,000 nonprofit staff participated. And so to talk a little bit about the demographics and who filled out the survey. Uh, so again, over 5,000 respondents, but what was remarkable was how similar the demographics of this sample was to the sample that filled out the survey back in 2016. And so this map shows you uh, sort of the darker colors are the states where we had more representation in 2019 in terms of uh, people working in the sector uh, who filled out the survey. But on this next slide, what I'm showing you is the race ethnic breakdown of the sample. Uh, and so as you can see in both 2016 and in 2019, roughly 60-40 split in terms of who self-identified as white versus who self-identified as people of color. And on the people of color side, we see remarkably similar breakdown in terms of specific race ethnic backgrounds that people identified with, generally within one percentage point of the previous survey uh, in 2016. We also saw that the gender breakdown was very similar with around 80% of the sample in both years identifying as women and uh, exactly the same percentage in 2019 uh, self-identifying as LGBTQ at 21%. We did ask some new questions in the survey in 2019 and one of those questions was about self-reported disability. And so you can see here the breakdown. I just wanna make sure that people understand that you know, only 10% of the survey respondents indicated that they, were, that they had some kind of disability, but this is showing the breakdown of that 10%. The big change in the demographics of the sample had to do with generation. And so this is actually not surprising. We ended up with a sample where almost half of the respondents uh, were born it, you know, in years where it would be that they're millennials or Generation Z. Again, this is, uh, you know, pretty representative of what we know about the workforce in general. So Pew Research Center noted that millennials had become the largest share of the U.S. workforce. Um, and so we think that we're seeing a similar, um, that this the data is keeping up with those trends. In terms of the findings for the report this time around, um, there were three main findings based on this uh, 2019 sample. The first one is that the findings from the original Race to Lead report based on 2016 data were basically confirmed. So a lot of the disparities, a lot of the problems that people were reporting were still with us in 2019, which really should not be uh, that much of a surprise. It, we, in addition, we were able to, through some of the new data and just looking at the data a little differently, we're able to really see that how clearly there's a white advantage in the nonprofit sector. And then there were a set of new questions that we added 
around diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts. And the survey confirmed that they're widespread, but there's a lot of um, uncertainty and to some extent skepticism about their effectiveness. So starting with that first finding about how largely we were seeing the same story. Um, so in 20, based on the 2016 data, the first race to lead report found that people of color and white respondents were similarly qualified. Um, and that the barriers to advancement that people were experiencing and seeing were fundamentally about systemic bias. And the reason that was important for us to lift up as a sort of key finding back in 2016 and again in 2019 was because when we first started exploring these questions of why we weren't seeing more diversity in top levels of nonprofit organizations uh, and why after several years and decades of people talking about diversity as a priority, um, but not seeing much momentum in terms of actual change in the composition of organizations and then the ways that organizations behaved, just seemed really important to uh, assert that systemic bias was the issue, that it was not about people of color not being ready, that it was not about people of color not having the aspiration or desire to lead, um, because those were some of the sort of myths that we were hearing otherwise uh, as the rationale for why we weren't seeing more diversity at top levels of organizations. So this first uh, slide shows you the breakdown in terms of the level of interest that people reported in taking on top level leaderships in the non leadership roles in the nonprofit sector. And so this is respondents who are not already themselves executive directors, but in both 2016 and 2019, roughly half of people of color said, yes, I definitely or probably would want to be a top level leader in the nonprofit sector compared to in 2019, 37% of white respondents. However, people also reported that they were experiencing that their race was a barrier to their advancement. And so uh, gonna spend a little bit of time explaining this chart because uh, it is somewhat complicated, but the first two bars are for the data from 2016, the lower two bars are the data from 2019. And so focusing on the 2019 data, the, the blue colored bar, which is for people of color, you can see on the left that 10% of people of color indicated that their race had had a very negative impact on their career advancement. 39% of people of color in 2019 reported that their race had had a slightly negative impact on their career, career advancement, which amounts to roughly half of people of color in 2019 reporting you know, negative impacts in terms of race on their advancement, which is higher than was reported in 2016, where roughly a third of people of color were saying that their race was having a negative impact on their advancement. In contrast, white respondents, you know, also there was some shifting between 2016 and 2019. In 2016, half roughly of white respondents indicated some awareness of white privilege, that their race was having a positive impact on their advancement in the sector. That increased to two thirds of white respondents in 2019. So what we have here is a combination of, I think, greater awareness of race and privilege on the part of uh, white respondents and also greater willingness 
on the part of people of color to be explicit about the racial barriers that they're experiencing and facing, and also the possibility that there are had been in that uh, period of time more negative experiences, more uh, experiences where people's opportunity was being blocked on the basis of uh, their race or not fitting into racially the people who hold power in their organizations that they work for. And so this quote helps to illustrate some of the complications, uh, problems, and frustrations that people of color reported to us both in the write-in responses in the survey as well as in the focus groups that we did around the country to gain some more depth and qualitative insights around what the data was telling us. And what I think is really important about this quote is that uh, the experience of this being sort of a constant challenging, right? And that the, the sort of um, difficulty that people are facing in terms of when to advocate uh, and you know, potentially be labeled as difficult, as angry, or to not advocate so as to not be left out of decision-making circles. But these are the complicated um, you know, organizational politics and racial politics that people are navigating in far too many nonprofit organizations across the country. We also asked people about the sort of uh, challenges and frustrations that they were regularly experiencing uh, in nonprofit workplaces. And so you can see at the top, generally people are stressed out by demanding workload, but we're not seeing a racial difference there, either in 2016 or in 2019. But in uh, inadequate salaries, we saw a gap of roughly five percentage points in 2016. That had increased to a nine percentage point gap in 2019, even though uh, the percent of respondents who were often or always experiencing that frustration had declined. But we're still seeing these racial gaps widening, which is a problem. Few opportunities for advancement. Again, same uh, phenomenon where we saw the gap widen from four percentage points in 2016 to nine percentage points in 2019. And then the real big difference was in this piece around lack of role models, where almost 20%, there was almost a 20 percentage point gap between people of color and white respondents in 2019, based on the frequency that they're experiencing this challenge of not having role models, not having access to people who provide support and mentorship. And so, just to provide the sort of positive view on why mentorship and support is so critical. Uh, here's a write-in response from one of the survey respondents about the difference that having mentorship has made for this uh, person's own career. Uh, and I think also the observation and experience that without that kind of support, they would not have been able to persist in the nonprofit sector. And I think it's so telling that the word is persist, right? Um, that, uh, you know, people are really struggling to stay in organizations and stay in this sector where leadership is so critical. We also asked respondents about their perceptions and views of what's behind this racial leadership gap. So this, again, the small, relatively small number of people of color in top leadership roles in the sector. So as you can see, um, there were, again, large uh, racial gaps between people of color and white respondents. And you know, I think that all of these are interesting, but I am going to just draw our attention to the last one, which is about people of color are less likely to want to work for white, in white dominant organizations. And we saw an increase 
uh, in people of color indicating that that would be a reason, right? Uh, that people of color just are opting out of putting themselves in these positions and in organizations where they are going to be isolated, where they're not going to be supported. Uh, with 58% of people of color agreeing that that is a factor. And so that really is a good lead into this next finding about the white advantage in the nonprofit sector. Because the data that we collected showed that the racial makeup of organizations is concentrating power in generally the hands of white people in organizations, both at the level of executive leadership as well as board. And that is having a clear impact on how people are experiencing their workplaces. In addition, uh, there are some financial disparities that seem to follow uh, issues of race, both in terms of the composition of organizations, as well as whether people, uh, as well as for workers themselves in the nonprofit sector. So just to start us off with a quote uh, and to ground us in the experience of uh, survey respondents around the isolation, the frustration of being one, the only or one of the only people of color in an organizational space. And what I think is particularly important is that this person is acknowledging uh, that this has an impact on the running of the organization, right? The programmatic decisions that organizations make, the stances that organizations take on key issues in the community. And it's also having an impact on the development of employees themselves. And so just to show visually the sort of concentration that I was talking about earlier, we asked all survey respondents to provide a little bit of information about the organizations where they work. And so the orange bar, it, bars are uh, where respondents indicated that fewer than 25% of any of these groups were people of color in their organization. So what you see then is over half of all survey respondents work for organizations where their board of directors has fewer than 25% of board members are people of color. Over half of all respondents, again, work for organizations where their leadership team, so the staff in top leadership roles, fewer than 25% of those people are people of color. However, in contrast, basically two thirds of respondents are working for organizations where the constituency that their organization is serving is primarily people of color, over half people of color. And so this is really telling uh, and so what we did with the data was we looked at both board and staff and top leadership roles and created some organizational categories based on this. And so what you can see is this box. Uh, in, so there's two grids here. The grid on the left, the box in the upper uh, left that's orange uh, and says 45%. So that's indicating that 45% of all of the survey respondents, all 5,000 people who took this survey, work for organizations where both the board and the senior leadership of the organization is less than 25% people of color. In contrast, the four blue boxes in the lower right are the respondents who work for organizations where more than half of both of those groups, board and senior leadership, are people of color. And so this grid on the right is showing proportionally like uh, that 45% is you know, only one box or one square in the grid on the left, but it's almost half if you think about it as a 
sort of distribution. And 14% is, again, a very small percentage of the sample overall. And the reason this matters is because we, we found that there were some really uh, striking gaps in workplace experience that people were reporting based on what kind of organization they were working for, whether it was a white run organization where both the board and leadership are over 75% white, or whether it was a POC led organization where over half of the board and leadership are black indigenous or other people of color. And then we've got this all other category in the middle that's roughly 41% of the sample. And so this uh, is showing you um, the, the sort of breakdown based on both the race of the respondent as well as the kind of organization that they're working for uh, in re relation to some key questions that we asked about workplace experience. So I'm just going to go through each uh, column uh, one by one. But what you, I just want to sort of from a big picture perspective show you, we're seeing big race gaps uh, between uh, people of color and white respondents who work for white run organizations. That's the row at the top. And then those gaps basically disappear for people of color and white respondents who work for POC led organizations. And in general, people are more positive about the organizations that they work for when they work for POC-led organizations. So let's dig into the first one, which is whether people would be happy if they worked at the organization three years from now. And the way we asked it in the survey was people had a scale from one to 10, one being completely disagree, right? So if it's a one, that means they definitely would not be happy working at the organization three years from now. 10 is they definitely would be happy. And so for respondents working for white run organizations, people of color had an average of 5.4, which is kind of like a 54%, not necessarily a passing grade in terms of happiness, uh, indications of problems around retention. 7.1 for white respondents working for white run organizations. And then the gap narrows and actually disappears when people are working for POC led organizations. Same phenomenon when it comes to whether people feel they have a voice in their organization. Again, big gap for people working for white run organizations basically disappears when people are working for POC led organizations. And then same thing again, my organization offers fair and equitable opportunities for advancement and promotion. And so this quote shows some of the experience uh, that people of color reported around what it's like, again, working for white run organizations and the frustration of being basically used as a token. We also saw that there were some budget patterns in terms of uh, people working for white run organizations being more likely to say that their organizations had big budgets compared to people working for POC led organizations, more likely to be under the $5 million mark. And on top of it, we found that for white respondents and people of color, there were some pretty striking differences in terms of their own uh, pay, right? So people of color were less likely to report that they'd received a cost of living increase, that they'd received a promotion, that they'd received performance-based raises. So these uh, issues are really impacting organizations, but also impacting workers themselves. So let's dig into the DEI data because again, we found that uh, experience was that organizations are doing work around DEI, but the impact is unclear. And so these are some of the things that people reported their organizations were doing, training, 
clarifying that DEI is central to the organization's mission, addressing the ways that racial and systemic biases impact the issues the organization works on, and then increasing representation. So all good that organizations are doing these things. Since training was the top thing, we did want to dig into it a little. And what you can see is that for respondents who reported that their organization had done training on four or more of the topics in that list on the right, they were much more likely to report that the training was having a positive impact on their organization. And I, what I think this is telling organizations is that training as a one-off strategy is not working and employees know that it's not actually making a difference. Here's a write-in response from someone who had a positive experience working for an organization that did some work around DEI, but what's critical to lift up is that this person's recognizing that it takes love, patience, diplomacy, but also anger and persistence. And I just think that too many organizations want this DEI work to sort of be work where everyone just feels good about the uh, activities all the time. And anger actually is going to be necessary and part of the process if organizations are actually going to change. Um, we also wanted to explore whether organizations have actual DEI policies in place. And again, that same pattern that I showed earlier with uh, white run, big gaps, racial gaps in white run organizations, much smaller for respondents working for POC-led organizations. And that was both for organization has policies in place, leadership demonstrates a commitment to DEI, and the organization is taking a public stand on issues. Uh, the last thing I just wanted to start talking about is like motivation, right? Like we asked people, and this was a new question, but to whether they agreed with the statement that we know how to improve DEI in the sector, but decision makers don't have the will to change. And overwhelmingly people of color agreed with that statement, but white respondents were less likely to. Uh, and I think that that's because people are having this experience that uh, it is fundamentally about willingness to make change. And this is a quote that speaks to this, that too much of the focus is on changing minds when we really need to be changing behavior. Uh, last thing is that we asked people, and this is related to the changing behavior, uh, we asked about like actual strategies for change, whether people thought they would work. And I just want to draw your attention to the middle one, the third one in this list, philanthropy, increasing funding for POC-led organizations. This is where we saw the biggest race gap, right? So white respondents are not very uh, supportive of this idea of philanthropy increasing funding to POC-led organizations, and the gap was particularly big among executive directors and CEOs. So it's just a little bit of a point of caution. Again, change means actually changing systems and structures. So last thing, we had some recommendations in the report. Pay attention to the experience of people of color in the workplace. We think that that's really critical. We think that organizational policies uh, have to actually be acted on. We also think that funders have to change their practices and make investments in particularly people of color-led organizations, and that the goals need to be reflected in the, like, the actual demographics of the organization and having more of a match between leadership and the constituency and community served. And we also need more transparency around actual progress uh, on these issues. So uh, invite people to you know, share the information. Please let people know that they can download the report at our website, Building Movement Project. And if you're interested in getting more information, just 
contact our general email info at buildingmovement.org. Thanks so much. Thank you, Sean. That um, data is fascinating and disturbing, uh, as you can imagine, and uh, it's going to be a really great um, uh, sort of jumping off point for our conversation after our next speaker. Um, and so I am really pleased to introduce uh, someone uh, I had a chance to meet last year when, when Diversity Inc. was first released and I had a chance to interview Pamela Newkirk for Gathering Ground and just um, we had a, an incredible conversation. And of course, because we do the work we do at Morton Group, I have been fascinated by the work um, of just not this book, but of Pamela's uh, career overall. And I want to give you just a little bit of her background before we bring her on. Uh, Pamela is an award-winning journalist and a professor of journalism at New York University. And she's written extensively about diversity in the news, uh, media, and art world. Um, she's the author of several other books as well. Spectacle, The Astonishing Life of Oda Benga, and that won an NAACP Image Award, and Within the Veil, Black Journalist, White Media, uh, and that won the National Press Club. And her articles and reviews have been published in every major media um, outlet that you can think of, whether it's the Washington Post, the New York Times, the Guardian, um, she's everywhere. And she too lives in New York City. Um, in Diversity Inc., which she will talk um, a little about shortly, uh, this is really one of the most well-researched books I've ever read. We use it in our work. We talk about it often uh, because we work with not only for-profits, but we work with nonprofits. And I think um, this book has uh, such great insights to offer those who are in corporate America, in for-profit companies, in higher ed, in entertainment about what diversity really means and what it can look like when it's done successfully and what happens when it isn't. So without further ado, uh, I am going to turn it over to Pamela Newkirk. Thank you. Thank you for that generous um, introduction. And uh, it, I'm delighted to, to join you today for this most timely conversation, but I could also say it's an ever timely conversation given the history of the movement uh, towards diversity. So um, as you note, I had the pleasure of, of sitting down with you about a year ago when the book first came out. And, and since that time, uh, particularly since the tragic killing of George Floyd and the frontal assault on diversity from the White House, there's no longer a need to convince anyone of the urgency of this issue or how little progress has been made. With Fortune 500 CEOs now declaring that Black Lives Matter, there are few who still maintain that we're in a post-race nation. So you've asked me, Mary, to discuss research that culminated in my latest book, Diversity Inc., The Failed Promise of a Billion Dollar Business, which uh, since its, its paperback release has been changed to Diversity Inc., the fight for racial equality in the, in, in the workplace. It's the same book. I, I just update the, the forward. Um, so in, in this book, I, I examine the 50-year struggle to diversify the American workplace why despite the billions that have been devoted to diversity initiatives each year, is 40% of the US population still acutely underrepresented in every influential field. And I look at why the business of diversity is flourishing 
while racial diversity is not. So it's impossible to understand diversity without exploring the big business of it, the tension between the rhetoric and the expenditures and the chronically dismal results. My book examines five decades um, it, it, and why progress has stalled and in some cases is in retreat. The numbers are telling. Between 2009 and 2018, the percentage of black law partners has inched up from 1.7% to 1.8%. People of color comprise just 8% of law firm partners. Between 1985 and 2016, the proportion of black men in management at US companies with 100 or more employees barely increased from 3% to 3.2%. Between 2004 and 2016, the white composition of corporate board seats has changed little, decreasing from 85.1% to 82.5%. People of color hold about 17% of Fortune 500 board seats and just under 4% of Fortune 500 CEOs. With the retirement in 2018 of Ken Chenault as CEO of American Express, the number of black Fortune 500 CEOs decreased to just three. And just uh, 10 years ago, it had reached a high of, uh, uh, of eight. So this underrepresentation defies the quickening pace of change in the nation's racial demographics. In 2011, for the first time in our history, more babies of color were born than non-Hispanic whites. And since 2010, non-Hispanic whites have been the minority in 22 of the nation's 100 largest metropolitan areas and are projected by 2045 to no longer constitute a national majority. But part of the problem in this whole diversity conversation is what diversity even means. The term which encompasses racial and ethnic minorities along with women, people with physical and mental challenges, gender, sexual orientation, and other marginalized populations. So there's little agreement on what diversity even means. A survey of 771 chief diversity officers at colleges and universities found that 63% had difficulty even arriving at a common definition with ideas ranging from simply valuing difference to social justice for those who have been historically disadvantaged. And in 2018, Denise Young-Smith, Apple's first ever vice president of inclusion and diversity took the ever evolving term to its seemingly logical conclusion when she suggested that 12 blonde blue eyed white men could also illustrate diversity due to their different backgrounds. And when asked whether she would focus on underrepresented minorities, Smith, a black woman responded, quote, I focus on everyone. Diversity is the human experience. I get a little frustrated when diversity is tagged to people of color or the women or the LGBT, close quote. So as diversity has become untethered from the history and legacy of racial injustice, its ambitious mandate has been eclipsed. 
and it's eclipsed the plight of racial minorities in general and African-Americans in particular. Overlooked too are the ways in which racial minorities become doubly and triply burdened by interlocking systems of discrimination related to physical and cognitive ability, gender and sexual orientation. So in Diversity Inc, I specifically explore the issue of racial diversity and focus on the three largest racial and ethnic minority groups, namely Blacks or African-Americans, um, Hispanics or Latinx, and Asians, even as the stark disparities between Blacks and whites remains the most illuminating indicator of America's racial breach. In examining the data and conversing with scores of people on the front line of the movement for change, I discovered some of the reasons why many are still pondering and gesturing rather than meaningfully increasing racial diversity. And I'll share kind of the highlights, the takeaways of my research. Number one, first and foremost, is racial custom the legacy of racial hierarchies stamped into the American DNA, an enduring ideology that permeates mass media, public iconography, so-called high art, the Western literary canon, and education curricula from grade school through higher education. The dismal numbers reported year after year are a predictable outcome of embedded racial attitudes and dominant narratives that define our culture. Much of the unrest we've seen in recent months, months is a reaction to the ways in which this ethos is expressed in policing, but also in public iconography, in the disparities in the COVID pandemic, in employment and other social indicators. Along with these disparities is a racial illiteracy and historical amnesia that undermines a true understanding of the underlying causes of systemic inequality. Number two, and uh, I'm listing the, the reasons why we haven't made greater progress on this issue over the past few decades. Number two is social networks. We live in a rigorously segregated society. People in the academy and Hollywood and in corporate America, like those in other influential fields, often hire people from their small social and professional networks. These networks, of course, often exclude people of color. For example, at colleges and universities, Faculty search committees generally have wide latitude to reach out to anyone they deem suitable or desirable to join the faculty. Hiring then is a subjective process and candidate finalists typically mirror the networks of those leading the search. Searches often result in the hiring of friends and former colleagues or people whose backgrounds, scholarly interests and sensibilities mirror those of the committee members. The candidates then tend to reflect the overwhelmingly white composition of the faculty. Add to this process of self-referential decision-making, the network of influential people who are then asked to write letters of recommendation and all but a small number of racial minorities are left out of the loop. For junior level prospective candidates whose scholarship challenges white norms and views embedded in Euro-centered canons, 
the odds are especially long. Moreover, once institutions do prioritize diversity, many attempt to recruit the same small cadre of proven stars in their fields while overlooking emerging people of color in the pipeline. As a result, the same superstars of color are recycled and moved between institutions while the overall number of people of color remains unchanged. The bidding wars over a handful of token stars further stokes resentment among whites with many claiming that it is actually racial minorities who receive preferential treatment. So for example, instead of expanding the number of African-Americans on corporate boards, many companies recruit the same small number of African-Americans who serve on multiple boards. It's a vicious cycle that for decades has helped maintain the status quo. And I don't think I even noted the, the percentage of uh, racial minorities in higher ed, numbers have barely budged in decades. African-Americans hold like 4% of uh, college and university professorships and Latinos 3%. So together, uh, African-Americans and, and, and Hispanics are about 31% of the US population, but just 7% of of professors, and that includes professors who teach at historically black colleges and universities. Number three, failed diversity practices. While many institutions have in recent years hired chief diversity officers and instituted diversity programs, there's a growing body of scholarship that suggests that much of the training mandated by thousands of institutions doesn't work and in some instances makes or does more harm than good. Quote, strategies for controlling bias, which drives most diversity efforts, have failed spectacularly, Harvard professor Frank Dobbin and Tel Aviv professor Alev Alexandra concluded in their study, Why Diversity Programs Fail, published in 2016. Noting the lack of progress in management of black men since 1985 and white women since 2000, they wrote, quote, it isn't that there aren't enough educated women and minorities out there. Both groups have made huge educational gains over the past two generations. The problem is that we can't motivate people by forcing them to get with the program and punishing them if they don't, close quote. Dobbin and Alexandra examined three decades of data from 800 US firms and interviewed hundreds of managers and executives. They found that mandatory, mandatory training often triggers a backlash, particularly among white men. Rather than being converted, they often react with anger and resistance. But even more troubling, is the adverse impact mandatory training appears to have on the very people it's intended to help. Five years after instituting training, they found that on average, the number of black women in management dropped 9.2% and the number of Asian women and men in management decreased 5.4 and 4.3% respectively. Another study, Prejudice Reduction, What Works, a Review and Assessment of Research, 
is one of the most comprehensive studies on the efficacy of diversity programs. It examined close to 900 published and unpublished reports of interventions intended to reduce prejudice over a five-year period. The interventions included workplace diversity initiatives, multicultural education, dialogue groups, media campaigns, cognitive training intended to combat bias and the like. And the training was related to a wide range of targets, including race, religion, age, weight, and attitudes towards diversity and multiculturalism. According to the authors, Elizabeth Levy Padlock at Harvard Center for International Affairs and Donald P. Green of Yale's Institution for Social and Policy Studies, quote, the strongest conclusion to be drawn from the field experimental literature on prejudice reduction concerns the dearth of evidence for most prejudice reduction programs. They said few programs originating in scientific laboratories, nonprofit or educational organizations, government bureaus and consulting firms have been evaluated rigorously. And they, they go on to argue that you can argue that diversity training workshops succeed because they break down stereotypes and encourage empathy and quote, alternatively, one can argue that such workshops reinforce stereotypes and elicit reactance among the most prejudiced participants. Neither of these conflicting arguments is backed by the type of evidence that could convince a skeptic. So they concluded, we currently do not know whether a wide range of programs and policies tend to work on average, and we are quite far from having an empirically grounded understanding of the conditions under which these programs work best. But even more troubling is that they found that the positive effects of diversity training at best last a day or two, and even then can trigger backlash. So there's little evidence that the initiatives most commonly employed by most institutions work, yet they continue to spend billions each year with little to show for it, which begs the question, why are institutions doing the same thing and expecting different results? Number four, the diversity backlash. Following the civil rights move, movement, America had begun to make tremendous progress towards closing the racial gap in income and education. However, by the end of the 1970s, affirmative action gave way to cries of reverse discrimination that continue to echo. In 1978, Mbaki versus the University of California, the US Supreme Court narrowly ruled in favor of Alan Bakke, a white student who sued the University of California Medical School for reserving 16 out of 100 seats for racial minorities. In a five to four decision, the US Supreme Court struck down the use of racial quotas in college admissions saying they violated the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause. Writing for the majority, Supreme Court Justice Lewis Powell explained, quote, there is a measure of inequity in forcing innocent persons in Baki's position to bear the burden of redressing grievances not of their making, close quote. 
So the ruling meant that past discrimination of disadvantaged groups could no longer be considered in admission decisions. The Bakke decision was followed in 1981 with the dismantlement of federal anti-discrimination programs under the Reagan administration. Affirmative action continued to be vilified even after quotas were eliminated. By the 1980s, many of the gains made during the 1960s and 70s, including school integration, were erased, along with federal policies that had begun to effectively close the education and poverty gap without whites losing ground. The backlash extended beyond education. As historian Carol Anderson recounts in White Rage, black unemployment had sharply declined during the 1960s and 70s. However, under the Reagan administration, federal jobs and education programs that had aided that progress were cut causing black unemployment to skyrocket to 15.5% the highest it had been since the Great Depression. Black youth employment, unemployment rose to 45.7%. Reagan then proceeded to slash the training, employment and labor services budget by 70%, a total of $4 billion causing college enrollment among African-Americans to tumble from 34% to 26%. Thus, Anderson wrote, just at the moment when the post-industrial economy made an undergraduate degree more important than ever, 15,000 fewer African-Americans were in college during the early 1980s than had been the case in the mid-1970s, close quote. These attacks had an immediate effect on the diversity of colleges student bodies. After California's passage in 1996 of Proposition 209, which abolished affirmative action programs in state hiring, contracting, and college admissions, minority admissions plummeted 61% at UC Berkeley and 36% at UCLA. Similarly, the percentage at Rice University's freshman class dropped 36% after Texas eliminated, eliminated affirmative action programs. Looks like we may have lost Pamela and um, we hope she'll be able to rejoin us in just a moment, but she has given us a lot to think about and I'm sure she'll try to call back in. Uh, and we wanna hear her concluding remarks. Um, and as we're waiting for Pamela to join us and make any concluding remarks, I'm going to go ahead and introduce our, our panelists, our respondents, if you will, to um, make sure we have time to have a conversation. I have lots of things I wanna ask about and I wanna hear you all talk about. So I'm gonna move forward and introduce um, Michelle Morales, who is with um, the Woods Fund. And uh, I'm happy to say that we we placed um, Michelle at the Woods Fund and, and you look fabulous as always. Um, and the Woods Fund is really has the distinction of being the first foundation in the city to explicitly commit itself to, to racial equity in its work in grant making. And prior to the Woods Fund, <laughs> Michelle led the Chicago chapter of the Mikva Challenge, an organization that leads civic, leads the civic field in training teachers and developing youth councils for civic institutions. Um, she's worked in alternative education and positive youth development. She's been a teacher. Um, 
she is a community organizer um, from way back when and um, still carries much of that spirit with her, which is why I really love working with her. So we wanna welcome you, Michelle, uh, to this conversation. Thank you so much for including me and inviting me to be a part of uh, your symposium today. I'm excited. Absolutely. And then I wanna bring on uh, Ronnie Patrick. Ronnie, I've also known for a very long time, uh, met Ronnie um, when I believe you were working at Access Living um, many moons ago. And Ronnie is currently the director of the Division of Rehabilitation Services at the Illinois Department of Human Services. Um, and Ronnie has an interesting background. She was born in South Bend, Indiana. She was raised nearby in a, a town of North Liberty. Her father was an Air Force veteran who met her mother, a native of Thailand, during the Vietnam conflict. And so um, quite an interesting background. And we always love hearing about um, where someone started, if you will. Uh, shortly after graduating from college, she became involved in the independent living and disability rights movements, primarily through the direction, the direct action group ADAPT, which I remember very clearly. Uh, Ronnie has also been appointed to several uh, councils by the governor's office. Um, she has worked on the education of children with disabilities and later served as the chair of the Illinois Statewide Rehabilitation Council, another um, gubernatorial appointment. Um, she also was awarded the Paul Hearn Award an emerging for being an emerging national leader in this work. And she served for two years um, on the American Association of People with Disabilities Board of Directors. So welcome, Ronnie. Nice to see you. And I'm gonna come right back to you, Pamela, so you can make your closing remarks. Um, but I wanna bring on our, our uh, next panelist and respondent, Audra Wilson. Um, Audra has been a champion for racial and economic justice for more than 20 years as a public interest lawyer and teacher and policy shaper and community mobilizer and activist. <laughs> the list goes on and on. And um, recently, as we were talking, um, when we were doing some prep for this, it's really come full circle because now after working at uh, Shriver Center for a number of years and then going on to do some work um, for then state um, uh, Senator Barack Obama, um, she is now the CEO and president of the Shriver Center. So that is bringing it full circle, Audra. And uh, we are excited about your appointment. You're still very new. Uh, you're, you're, what, six months? And I think actually, Michelle, this is your anniversary, right? Yesterday or today? Uh, tomorrow is my one year anniversary. Okay. Yep. We're coming up on a year, right? So you get to say you're new for a good year easily. Uh, so in any case, welcome to all of you. And before we, we start with some Q&A, I would just love Pamela to make sure you finished any of your remarks and Sean is back here as well. Pamela, anything else you wanted to say before we lost you? Yeah, and I was on, I was, I was, I was up to my fourth point. I was midway through it and I can just like quickly wrap that up. So I was talking about the immediate effect that all of these um, anti-affirmative affirmative action measures had on uh, college enrollment for people of color. And I just wanted to say that, you know, one of the people who I spoke to about this issue was Columbia University President Lee Bollinger, who has been on the forefront of the diversity movement in um, colleges and universities while he was president at the University of Michigan and now at um, Columbia University. And what he basically said is that um, diversity is deprived of the context that gave it a sense of mission. Um, right. 
he said, quote, every college leader is told do not refer to history. I think we have a meaningless abstract conversation about diversity without a rationale. And, and so you continue to see these attacks on affirmative action and on diversity, um, most recently with uh, Trump's executive order. And last year, Mark Perry, an uh, economics professor at the University of Michigan, uh, filed a complaint against uh, Wayne State University for hosting Black Girls Code, uh, the nonprofit that seeks to address the virtual absence of Black women in tech. And the final point that I had, um, the fifth reason why we don't have greater diversity is leadership. Um, diversity or the lack thereof is a leadership issue. While the diversity apparatus, the task forces, studies, officers, consultants, suggest that achieving diversity is rocket science, research shows that it, it primarily requires committed leadership and intention but instead many institutional leaders have farmed the problem out to consultants or chief diversity officers who are often marginalized within the institution. Um, so Bollinger is saying, quote, uh, you have to believe in a principle of justice. There hasn't been enough pushback on the abstraction of diversity. You have to make it front and center. I think it's a matter of intention. If it's a pipeline issue, you have to work on the pipeline. The entire institution has to be behind it. So those are my points of why we don't have it. And we can discuss uh, during our conversations what we can do to get beyond um, these roadblocks. Absolutely, thank you so much. And I know as I, I think um, when I first read the book uh, last year, I thought, now, gosh, is this going to be difficult for me to have a conversation with Pamela, where she's essentially saying that the work we're doing may not be that meaningful. And actually, that is not what she's saying. That's not what she's saying at all. Exactly. And we already know about the work, right? That if you are not consistent, and, right. if, and if the leadership does not believe in it, and right. you don't have the resources to it, it yeah. is not going to work. It's not going to work. And, and, you know, that's what we're seeing. We're seeing a lack of will, intention, and leadership. Absolutely. So um, let's start with um, Michelle and, and, and Ronnie and Audra. And I'd love to know, just tell us briefly um, how you've come to the work around um, racial equity, DEI work, however you are approaching it in your, your organization um, and, and why some of these points, either the ones that Sean has made or that Pamela's made resonate um, with, with your work and in, in, in your organization. Can we start with you, Michelle? Sure, I think um, I speak often uh, about my own stories. Um, and when I come to uh, READY and DEI work, it comes from my experience as a Puerto Rican woman uh, in the nonprofit sector. Um, uh, and uh, everything that Sean shared, which I've read that report before, resonated yet again. I was writing down many a, a data point. Um, because it, it, it does reflect at the very least, you know, I can speak to my history and sort of my trajectory throughout my career in terms of having a small network, in terms of ha not having enough mentors, in terms of the skill sets, et cetera. Uh, so when I entered uh, my first leadership position at Mikva Challenge Chicago, it was really with a lens of my own experience uh, as a woman of color that I used to try to put um, some racial equity measures in place. Now. What was shocking to me 
And, and I wanna make it a point in our conversation today that I had not reckoned with in myself was how much I had internalized white leaning, white practices, if you will, will, of leadership, right? Of how that had been modeled for me throughout my career. Um, and even though I was so staunchly, I'm Puerto, you know, Puerto Rican woman, I've been you know, treated in these ways, I'm gonna do something different. All of those past practices, all of those embedded and entrenched kind of leadership models came out, right? And it was my, it was the staff at McFaa Challenge that really challenged me uh, in my thinking and in my practices and in some of those embedded bias that I had to struggle with in order to really uh, authentically lead, if you will, racial equity initiatives. And so I offer that um, as an opener because I think often sometimes when we talk about uh, those of us who are leaders of color, we forget how much we also have our own embedded biases and our own entrenched practice, practices because we live in a white heteronormative world. And so those things become embedded in us. So. Absolutely, I appreciate that. And, and, and essentially we've, we've taken in and taken on white supremacy culture. Um, so absolutely. Um, Audra, would you, why, don't, why don't you go next and share with us your, your uh, reaction to um, doing this work, doing it over time and seeing how it's changed over time, particularly in, the, you've worked in a number of legislative and government uh, related uh, fields. No, definitely. Um, thanks for having me here today. I just have to say to Michelle, I'm feeling very frumpy compared to how fabulous she looks in the camera. <laughs> so for everyone watching, don't mind my, <laughs> my COVID frumpiness here. So um, the, um, well, it, you know, hearing the statistics, hearing the facts, I mean, it's it's the same um, reaction that a lot of you have. I mean, there's there's a lot of frustration to hear these things and there's a bit of resignation, kind of like, this is nothing new. Um, the, the frustration, obviously, is that why, why in this day and age, and, and in, in so many ways, we've progressed as a, as a, as a country, as a, as a state, as a city, and yet we still have a lot of these conversations. And so it's just always the, you know, it, it reminds me as, a, as, a, as the president and CEO of Shriver Center, which is a over 50-year-old organization that was born out of the war on poverty, and something that I would always tell my law students, I'm like, our work is evergreen. So administrations change, uh, times change, and circumstances change, but there's, until we're really, really willing to get to the root of that problem, and, you know, Mary, when you talk about our kind of white supremacist culture, um, until we're really willing to have the conversation about, you know, why we can all paths seem to lead back to the same negative place, we're going to continue to be spinning our wheels as organizations. Um, I started at Shriver right out of law school, and um, it really was a great place for me to, to cultivate those, the skills that I was able to carry with me in my subsequent job. As a matter of fact, I always say that as circuitous a path as I had professionally, it, it, it makes sense because it all was supposed to come back full circle. I think I was actually supposed to be here. Um, and interestingly, not only replacing its first president and only president, but a white male who happened to be the person who hired me in the first place. So, you know, some special significance and, and you know, and a wonderful person to succeed. So um, I'm, I'm lucky in that sense. Um, and the organization has grown exponentially. But the work though, still, I mean, it's like, we're still fighting this fight. And even though we've been able to grow much more and, and to do more in this fight, it still is frustrating because every time we, we seem to make a gain in one place, then we're losing traction in another. 
And so it still goes back to, and I know we'll talk about this more and more about really getting to these foundational and fundamental issues that unfortunately you saw with this election. We knew this was a referendum on, on white supremacy and white hegemony. Um, that's what this has been all about. <laughs> and um, until we actually as a nation willing to have that conversation once and for all, the work that many of us do, you know, and many folks who are watching right now will continue. Great, thank you so much. And Ronnie, what's your perspective on this and how it's, it's, it's changed over time or not? Yep, so um, I'm really grateful um, for the statements for, um, of you know, Michelle and also Audra because um, you know, I, as a woman of color, I haven't had a lot of folks who are able to resonate with me and even Sean's report gave an opportunity for like, you can kind of feel like you're being gaslit in terms of, am I really experiencing what I'm feeling? Am I really so outrageous and angry that it doesn't make any sense? Um, and here's the data, right? There's other folks that are here that are able to experience that. And so I think that the bench has deepened, even as Sean's reported, had demonstrated that there are more um, folks um, that are being, that are being allowed to enter in to leadership roles um, that can then give us an opportunity to, you know, further this agenda that, um, which is that, you know, let us end white supremacy. And so um, that's changed. I think that uh, there's also an awareness, but it's just the inclusion of people with disabilities, um, the LGBTQ folks, um, you know, those are agendas being included um, in terms of um, diversity um, is also something that's important. And I also like the shift about anti-Blackness. So, Michelle, I think that what you talked about really resonated with me. What I what I interpreted for myself when I went through that um, um, under acknowledgement and understanding in myself about what I've absorbed about white supremacist um, values and leadership styles was that I um, also adopted an anti-blackness. You know, here I can be like, oh, I'm Asian. You know, I'm representing people of color, but there is also there also was a colorism component that I was that I learned about at a very young age. So, you know, being someone who is mixed race, my sister was, you know, darker skin. I had another sister who was lighter skin, you know, all this colorism stuff that's going on. And you learn that it's at such a um, impressionable age that you don't even realize that you're carrying it forward in your um, everyday adult life. And so I wanted to just say those few remarks. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, Sean, when you have, um you know, as, as um, your organization released the data, what's, what's the reaction to this data, particularly in the, the nonprofit, well, in the nonprofit leadership world, because that's who you were, you know, you collected the data from uh, folks who work in, in that particular industry. What's been the reaction? Have they been surprised? And, and certainly the reaction between now and in 2016. Sure. Um, so I, I'm not sure that there's much surprise. Um, I think the reactions though have been, or you know, with the original report had been somewhat interesting because so as a part of a co-directorship team, my co-director is a white woman. Mm -hmm. She was presenting the same slide deck to public audiences. She would get this response of, particularly from people of color, like why do we need research to justify or explain our experience? Whereas when I was presenting the same slide deck to an audience, the sort of pushback I would get was from particularly white people, often white men, like, 
how do you know that your data is legitimate, right? Like wanting to really sort of uh, push back on the data, right? And I just think that that is, you know, the pushback on the data, the pushback on the qualitative experience, like both things reflect uh, the way that people accept information differently depending on who is delivering it and also reflects like real frustration, right? Like, and I think it's legitimate frustration on particularly our, you know, as people of color to have, uh, to have been saying these things over and over again for years, right? Like that's the reason we decided we wanted to do a survey was because we knew that this wasn't new debate, but um, that we wanted to, you know, add some, a different way of looking at it and sort of having a quantitative lens did seem like it would be useful. And like, we also recognize that the, that's part of why we collected the write-in responses and why we do focus groups because you know, data only tells you part of the story. Um, and that's why I think it's so important to have those write-in responses and really think about like, what are the words that people are deciding to use when they describe their experience in nonprofit organizations? Mm -hmm. uh, and I appreciate you talking about the delivery of information and how it differs from when you or Francis are delivering it, because that's exactly why we have a multiracial team of trainers always, uh, because we, uh, we understand the dynamic that can happen. Um, Pamela, as you have talked about this work, um, there are a couple of examples uh, in corporate America, uh, in higher education, in entertainment, um, where there has been some forward movement. Um, I, you know, diversity, right? That term's been around for a long time. And certainly when I started Morton Group, um, did a lot of diversity work. And, in, and what we learned that people often meant was, we want people who look different, but think exactly like we do. Right, certainly for boards of directors, that is often the case. We really do want that picture, but we don't want everything else that comes along with it. And so can you give us some ideas of, of places where you've seen some success and people are actually doing the work um, and, and are moving beyond this fallacy of being in any sort of post-racial existence? Yeah, so probably one of the most uh, successful case studies I, I cited was what happened at Coca-Cola after that landmark um, discrimination uh, settlement in, in 2000. And so they, they moved beyond um, the, this whole notion of changing hearts and minds in the workplace. And they got down to what, what kind of interventions can we do? And so um, one of the uh, interventions was first assessing across the company uh, where people were clustered, where people were underrepresented, how were salaries like was the, were the equitable salaries? Of course, the answer was no, no, no. you know so once they 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 looked at the metrics along racial lines along gender lines, they were able to detect patterns of bias that had, metastasized in unequal pay, unequal promotions, unequal opportunity, unequal candidate pools, you know, candidate pools that had totally uh, excluded people of color. And by uh, monitoring this data, they were able to disrupt these patterns of bias in real time. So before uh, a job offer could even be made, they would have, managers would have to show what did the candidate pool look like? 
are, is the salary in line with other people? If you're bringing in a person of color, is there parity in, in the salaries? Is there, you know, um, you know, and they were able to like really dig in on where they had been this acute underrepresentation of certain groups. And then there was the intention of reaching out to professional networks of color, historically black colleges and universities. And they were over a five year period of, of this kind of vigilance, they were able to substantially increase uh, diversity across um, you know, positions and in five years had something that at least began to uh, reflect the diversity of that community. You know, there are so many interventions that we can imagine. Um, it, it reimagining the kind of skill sets that are required for certain roles. Um, you know, mentoring someone had mentioned earlier is probably one of the most undervalued tools that you can use mm -hmm. to, you know, to shaking their head, yes. To, to invest right in, in the development and in, into the growth of that person in the company. It's, it's essential, but yet, you know, over the past year and going into companies and speaking, um, what I have seen is this like discomfort that many whites feel towards their black and brown colleagues. You know, I, I've heard people say things like, I've been here for five years and I've never talked to uh, another black person and it's like why it's like I don't know what to say so that's where we are so how can we even expect people of color to get the kind of you know investments in their in their success that should naturally follow when you hire someone right you you, you would think that you're naturally going to um, invest in their development but that's not happening mm -hmm. and so if if these institutions began to implement mentoring programs across the board, and that way people of color won't fall through the cracks, because right now mentoring happens if people want to do it. <laughs> it's not, you know, baked into in into the system. So there are, you know, a number of successful strategies that that can be easily adopted but it goes back to leadership intention and will. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. There's been a lot of success. So that's the good news. The good news yeah. is there are successful models. That's right. And it can be done. I mean, as I said early this morning, we deeply believe in people's ability to change. I mean, we, we couldn't do this work if we didn't. Um, I'm, I'm curious um, with regard to philanthropy, uh, Michelle, how have you, um, really made sure that maybe your grantees were going beyond what might be seen as performative in this area, right? Just doing what is um, superficially necessary uh, to dig a little deeper. Yeah, it's still a work in progress. So I wanna lead with that. I think one of the ways that we've been um, paying attention to, you know, if, if, I know many of you on the, the panel agree with this, racial equity at the end of the day is really about a rebalancing of power uh, and ensuring uh, particularly that marginalized identities are in positions of power or are, are, are you know, at those uh, tables or at those seats. And so what, when we talk with our grantees and it's actually a, a compliance uh, metric for us, we pay attention to their leadership and we pay attention to their board makeup. Now, 
where it's a work in progress, as I, I know we all know this, just because you have representation doesn't mean those individuals align with community and community-based practices. But uh, as a starting point, we do pay attention to that and it's a, it's a metric that we pay attention to. We have run into grantees who seem, who have been confused by that metric and will say things like, what our staff is predominantly of color and we have to remind them that's your frontline staff, not your executive leadership and not your board. Right. And so we pay attention to the executive leadership of the organizations and we pay attention to the board chair and the board makeup. Mm -hmm. um, I will say, you know, one of the things that we're looking to do as a foundation is uh, we are about right now uh, 60 percent um, uh, BIPOC, Black, Indigenous, people of color led organizations versus a 40 percent white we're looking to actually increase the number of BIPOC-led orgs to 75% and reduce the number of white-led orgs in our portfolio to 25%. And that's generated some interesting conversations because I think whenever you talk about reducing uh, anything that's white-led, you get a pushback that you often don't get when, you know, if your numbers are around your BIPOC-led orgs, maybe we're not as high. Uh, so that's been an interesting sort of uh, thing that we've been, um, interesting discussions that we've been having, but that's how we pay attention. We, and, and many other, many foundations are starting to do this as well. Uh, and I, I, two years ago, we made it a, a compliance metric for our grantees. Great, thank you. Now, Ronnie, you're in state government. And, and first of all, I'm sure there was quite a transition uh, going from nonprofit to state government. Um, I've done that as well on city government, not state government uh, many years ago. Um, and you happen to now be in what I think could be considered uh, probably one of the most progressive administrations. Um, however, it is still government, right? At the end of the day, and there's some, some uh, limits to what you can do because it is government. What have you seen in terms of positive uh, movement, um, in terms of people understanding, certainly around access and accessibility, that we've, we've got to do a much better job around um, thinking about um, what is needed and what is necessary. Yeah, this, thank you. Um, I have seen that there is just, I think that the Secretary of Human Services, Grace Ho, um, yes. you know, felt that it was important to have somebody with a disability to be in charge of an agency that is um, for people with disabilities. So, you know, the Division of Rehabilitation Services is about helping people with disabilities be integrated into the communities that where they live and to be employed. And um, it's, a, it's an amazing mark of leadership uh, that um, I think that more folks could follow in terms of really reaching into communities that are um, affected and finding the talent that is there so that that um, it represents really what your you know what the that this that um, I'm sorry the DEI um, work is trying to achieve, and and so I would say that that was really a big deal. Although it kind of points to me, so I hope it doesn't cross as egotistical or anything like that. But there uh, there is also like metrics that are also put in place where we are being held um, as a as an agency. To, be, to bring in more people with disabilities, um, to listen, to bring in um, our members that have disabilities or are you know, led by people with disabilities and then make response. So like adjusting to the, what is being said by people with disabilities 
um, in a way that um, makes a difference and also just, you know, fulfills that the DEI that we are um, actually called to, um, to, you know, accomplish at, at, in the state of Illinois. Great. And, and Sean, um, did you have the same category around disabilities in 2016 as you have in the 2019 data? Tell us about that evolution. Yeah, so that was, in, that was a question that was added uh, in the 2019 survey. And in part, um, because we were getting legitimate uh, and valued pushback uh, on the, the race to lead reports, um, you know, not having commenting and sort of continuing the invisibility of people with disabilities. I think part of the challenge from a data perspective was, as I said, it was less than 10% of the sample, the diversity of the disabilities that were reported has made it hard to figure out like what to do with that data. Um, but yes, we did collect it in 2019. We had not had that question in the survey in 2016. And we did it to be responsive to a legitimate pushback that we valued from people at uh, presentations. Absolutely, and when we know better, we, we do better. Um, ideally, um, that, is, that is what happens. So Audra, Shriver Center, uh, dedicated to eradicating poverty uh, through racial and economic justice. Um, how have you, or have you um, changed the approach of your work at this moment in this, you know, at this time in history in this country? Have you seen significant ways um, that you've had to change how you approach the work? So, so yes, I mean, yes, we have um, in some ways. It's interesting because, you know, I'm fortunate enough to be at the helm of an organization that has this so explicitly in our mission, in our title, in our mission and everything. Mm -hmm. um, but sometimes the danger of that is that people, um, fortunately, not my team, but it is very easy to get a little comfortable in that. Almost like yes. you don't take the time to, to, to be that the sort of this is what I call organizational introspection. When I first came on, I said it was a period of organizational introspection, not just thinking about our work and and how our work would have to pivot to be able to to be as responsive to the needs that were, were most pressing, especially when we're talking about racial justice. But also we have to look with, within um, because this is a situation in which many of our, our team members were coming from communities that were ravaged by COVID. They had very negative interactions sometimes with law enforcement and they dealt with some other sorts of racial injustice. So it was especially poignant for them because, um, and, and lawyers tend to do this and advocates sometimes can be very dispassionate. We, we're so focused on our constituents, we're focused on our communities that we don't stop and think about what kind of impact this is having on us personally. So when I came on and I started in June 1st, I had to really create that space for us to be able to have the conversations that say, how is this impacting us personally? How are we feeling about this personally? How are we internalizing that? Because quite frankly, that's going to reflect in the work that we do as well, and even our approach. So this is a, a place and space where it was okay to say, tell me what you're really feeling. Um, because chances are, if you're feeling it's because you're coming from these communities, this is probably the one time where it's kind of safe to say, you know, you're almost representing some of these communities that we serve. And I've found that when we've been able to have those discussions, they've been much more meaningful, mm -hmm. um, raw, <laughs> mm -hmm. uncomfortable. Um, we have a staff predominantly of color, um, but uh, enough white staff uh, who, again, are 
very passionate and committed to the work, but enough staff to, to start to feel uncomfortable and not sure what do I say and how do I say it? So we, even an organization like mine, there are still those conversations internally about how we have this, this dialogue and this discussion. Um, but having provided that space to have those discussions, I think has been of a measurable help because now we're able to really refocus um, our efforts and very carefully at the work that we do and kind of filter it through a different lens, especially as we're determining what is gonna be most impactful, what is most immediate in terms of what our communities need and how must we pivot or maneuver ourselves to be as responsive as possible. So I wanna come back to you, Pamela. Um, I can, one of the things that I loved about the book was that there's just a lot of what I would refer to as sort of popular culture references in it and things that we saw happen from the other side. Um, I, I'm thinking of the Oscar, um, uh, sort of advocacy work, um, the years that, uh, what was it, Oscar So White, was that the tagline that started? And that that happened just by accident. I think the person's name is Rain, who said, I, I was just, you know, putting out my opinion. And the right. next thing you know, it's it's literally gone viral. Um, do you see as much of that happening? Do you, and, and I referenced this a little bit earlier, my remarks about the, the cancel culture, if you will, mm -hmm. um, that we are in. Um, which I think serves no purpose in most cases. Um, what, what are you hearing about that and, and, and in terms of the response to your book where you talk about the entertainment industry? Yeah, well, you know, unfortunately what happens, particularly in, in uh, creative fields like in Hollywood and fashion, what happens is there's one embarrassing episode and in this case, in, in the case of Hollywood, it was, you know, her, her tweet, Oscar So White that went viral globally and it shed light on the virtual exclusion of black and brown people at the higher echelons of high of Hollywood, you know, refocused attention on, you know, the number of directors, like, you know, like 95% are white men. And um, so it, so, I mean, in, in the end, it did um, help to, to kind of highlight the issues and then you know, it becomes a predictable dance. So what happens, then they put a black person in charge of the Oscars and then they, it, and so it's almost like it becomes um, this very predictable dance, you know, that we have this embarrassing episode. So we throw a black person out there. Yes. Um, it happened with fashion, you know, they were, you know, Gucci got a black guy and Burberry because they had blackface in their design. So what do they do? They get high profile black people to become the face of it's like, we care about diversity kind of operation. The problem with the, the, the reaction is that usually it's very superficial. Mm -hmm. and, and, and we're, we're not seeing where it's actually disrupting the systemic, you know, racial bias that are in these companies. Now we have seen a little more progress in, in Hollywood than, than I've seen in like fashion. Um, we're beginning to see African Americans being named, you know, studio heads or divisions of studios. So there's some movement, but I'm, I'm just a little uh, skeptical because I've seen the way, um, you know, most of the efforts are, are very, very superficial. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like it's like the way, you know, Fortune 500 CEOs all issued statements saying that Black Lives Matter. OK, and Black Lives Matter. Now what? Exactly. You know what? Like what kind of structural 
changes are going to happen as a result of that because many of them, what they did is they pledged millions of dollars to civil rights organizations as if they don't have a problem within right. their very <laughs> in, within their very institutions. Like turn turn the scrutiny onto yourself. Like like the civil rights groups will handle you after they prove discrimination. <laughs> but what can you do to disrupt the structural inequalities within your in, in your midst? And so that's that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for I'm looking beyond the superficial to actual structural changes, um, the kind of, you know, systems that, that um, you know, that even, you know, Coca-Cola invested in to, to begin to dismantle structural inequality. First, you have to be able to assess it and, you know, detect where it lies and then, but, you know, one of the troubling um, things that, that I found last year, Russell Reynolds, released a survey of Fortune 500 chief diversity officers and only 35% even had access to the metrics within their organizations. So they can't even hope to detect the problems, let alone begin the work of, of you know, fixing what, what right. is there, right? right. And so, th so that is just an indication of the lack of true intention because if you're not giving people the basic tools that they need to do this work, they're never going to be successful. Exactly, exactly. No, I, I, I totally agree with that. Um, when um, there was something that I think um, I wanted to ask you, Ronnie, with regard to, you talked about being in the Illinois Department of Human Services. And, and I can say, because we worked with the governor's office, um, that there was a commitment to doing racial equity training. Uh, and then to do action planning and to to not uh, to understand that the training is is really scratching the surface. I mean, the reality is in most cases we can you know we have an opportunity to do a three hour training or a six hour training, and then there are times when we of course can do additional trainings down the road. But often when a client uh, comes to us, they are looking at. Um, what can they do? What can they maybe sometimes do in the short term? Uh, which is why earlier we wanted to make sure people understood that this work is, it is a journey. It is a process. It's not going to be fixed, if you will, overnight. And when you are working in a large bureaucracy, right, which is government, um, how have you, what, how have you seen uh, some of the smaller steps taken? You, you started to talk about some of the work that uh, Grace Ho is doing. And, and we should just say that Grace Ho is the former president of the Woods Fund. So the Woods Fund has a long history of doing this kind of work. Um, what, what are some of the things that make you hopeful about change, not only inside government, but how government can impact what's happening outside? Yes, I'm so excited about the work with the, just on, we were trying to get services and resources on the ground and, you know, none of us, none of us in government um, uh, signed up to have to address the health emergency that we are with COVID-19. Right. And however, we, we are, we're, we're doing it and we want to answer the call for help because our, our tagline is help is here. We are um, putting, you know, just millions of dollars across the state of Illinois, but particularly in communities of, of black and brown folks who are, um, you know, just seem to be a you know, very highly hit by this virus. And also just people with disabilities. People with disabilities also are 
you know, um, seem to be particularly vulnerable as well. And so then you have this intersection mm -hmm. of communities where you have people with disabilities um, who are, um, you know, black or brown that um, are, you know, just kind of a nexus for the impact of this virus. So we're working on, and we have been working on getting programs and funding and resources out to agencies, one agencies that are supporting folks um, in the in these um, you know these populations, as well as um, individuals that um, are impacted, and and so resources look like you know food, um, em employment money, uh, you know like front employment money, um, uh, protective gear, so equipment to help people not get in the infection, um, and just a lot all the other things in between. And so that I think it that it may not have been. Like there, it's, we have a sense of urgency around putting that down and into the communities. And so I think that, there, you know, it does go back to that leadership. And I really feel too, like in this conversation, we're really talking about, you know, change management and, um, and, and, and all of those techniques that are necessary for operationalizing change within your organization. So I also wanted to um, say that as well. I hope that's helpful. No, that's, that's absolutely part of it. And uh, we're going to move into some Q and a from our, our uh, audience members, uh, and there are quite a few of them. So let me just take a look at some of the questions here. Um, so the first one is, given your own roles of power, how are you thinking about when and how to lead, share, respond, step back with your teams? And how do you handle it when some staff, and this is in caps, want direction and traditional leadership, while others may want and appreciate, I see people shaking their heads, more collaborative or flatter approaches particularly during raw conversations. So who would like to start? It's a lot of, lot of shaking heads there. So who would like to start? I have no power. Uh, that definitely <laughs> other women, other uh, panelists. Um, Michelle, do you want to start? And then we'll come to Audra and Sean and everyone. I will say I have definitely not mastered that. Um, you know, it's really interesting. Um, and uh, I, I'm gonna, uh, this is not to say that generations are a monolith, but my experience in leading MICFA has been very different than my experience at leading Woods Fund. The, the staffing at MICFA Challenge Chicago is predominantly uh, millennial, younger, many of them, it was their first job. Um, and then at, at uh, Woods Fund, it's predominantly Generation X and baby boomers. Mm -hmm. And so it's been a really interesting uh, dynamic for me and coming from an organization that actually much of the 80% of the staff were uh, below the age of 35. Um, we're looking for that flatter type of leadership, well, I, which I will say I struggled with because that was never how I was mentored or the type of leadership that I saw. Uh, and that I experienced, or I struggled with the flatter type and experimented with different ways of getting feedback and collaborating, but also trying to be um, explicit and clear about when is it that the, the, the decision rested with me or, or, or with the board, depending on certain situations. And then the experience at Woodswin has been very much hierarchical, um, very much, uh, um, um, I, I'm going to put this in quotes, a respect for the hierarchy. In fact, what the president says kind of goes. So it's been a very interesting. So at MICVA, it was, I was trying to learn how to lead, if you will, in a flatter type of sense and get that, you know, that feedback. And I, I will say my first year, I 
you know, there was almost a mutiny on the staff because again, that's not how I've been mentored. And so I came in making changes and really did not collect that input like I should have from the team, from the staff. And at Woods, it's actually, now I'm trying to change the culture there. Around, there should not be a deference, if you will, for the president's office. There should be feedback. There should be pushback. There should be more of a conversation and a critique that, uh, you know, I'm just bringing one lens and perspective to the table. I don't, I'm not the expert, right? And so I'm trying now to, you know, do a culture change, if you will, within the Woods Fund Foundation so that we do work more collaboratively as a team and in a sense, in a flatter kind of uh, uh, a manner as opposed to, I think, what, you know, what, what the foundation has been used to. I know that doesn't answer the person's question, like, how do you do it? But I do want to say, <laughs> That has been something that I've struggled with and that I've been, you know, learning along the way. Uh, so, yeah. No, it's, I think that's real. And I think um, the generational piece is really uh, important. And I, I guess I think back to the report, Sean, how you saw some distinctive differences uh, with regard to uh, generational responses. Can you just remind us of what some of those were? Yeah, we're actually still uh, sort of trying to dig into it uh, and try to unpack. We we organized the focus groups around generations uh, to sort of hear from millennials in their own, like in a group of millennials of color or in a group with white millennials, like what their take was on these issues different from people who are part of Gen X or baby boomer uh, generations. Um, but, you know, it's, our data is not super conclusive on it. I think one of the things anecdotally though that I keep hearing over and over again, particularly from other leaders of color, is that there are real challenges that many leaders of color are experiencing in terms of a higher degree of pushback from their staff on expectations that the organizational structure is going to be flat, expectations that, organ that organizational leaders will not lead in a way that previous leaders did, particularly if the previous leader was white, but the same set of expectation and pushback was not leveled against the predecessor. And so I just do think that we do have to think about what are the, I don't think that people of color inherently are going to lead differently, right? But I do think that there's a racialized expectation of the way that we'll lead. And, you know, particularly, you know, like, the kind of expectations that are put on women of color in particular in leadership roles around like the caretaking and the emotional burden. I just think it's fundamentally about race expectations that are at the intersection of race and gender. And, you know, I think there are far too many people of color who are being burned out of their leadership roles you know, in part because of the burden of actually running or nonprofit organizations, but also the continual pushback that they're experiencing on the part of their staff. And I don't know if people read Vu Lei's article, it was like a year ago maybe, but he coined this term of like toxic self-marginalization where he really dug into this phenomenon because I think we've been hearing this from other peer leaders of color who are just leaving uh, executive leadership roles because of this frustration. So it's complicated. It, John, you just encapsulated my entire leadership career. So thank you. <laughs> okay. All right. Let's hear from Audra because we have a, the, the questions are coming fast and furious. Audra, what, I saw a lot of shaking of the head there. So. Yeah. 
between Michelle and Sean pretty much have nothing left to say. So <laughs> I mean, it's just, they, they pretty much said it all. I mean, it, it is, I, I can't help but to say that, um, and I, I work for a, a racial equity, a racial justice organization. And so everybody, um, and, and I'm a Gen Xer and I've got a lot of millennials and, and fewer though, baby boomers. And it is, I had to tell people coming in the door, I said, this is gonna sound really a bit menacing, but I don't govern by consensus. And what I meant by that was not that I didn't want input and feedback and that I don't value that, but it was almost like every decision had to be talked out and let's talk about this and how, let's form a committee to do this. And finally I was like, oh, good Lord, how do you expect me to get stuff done if everything is, you know, and it was coming from a sensitivity and a place of feeling as though major decisions had been made and they were excluded. And so now people, especially as it pertained to um, diversity and equality when it came to payments, you know, um, to um, power and structure and, and um, salaries and that sort of thing. So what I found right now at the team is that you have to have a place where I try to have almost like a hybrid, meaning I said, I am a CEO and, and to the point that was made that yes, there's a lot of pushback on, on, on women of color, um, CEOs of color, things that I'm thinking like, would you say that to my predecessor? Mm. You may have thought it, but would you have ever actually said that out loud? Yeah. And because, and I, you know, I know they, they wouldn't have said it out loud because people have emailed me afterwards apologizing, mm. saying, oh, Audra, I didn't mean this. And I said, you know, I appreciate the acknowledgement but I find it interesting that <laughs> I'm getting something on the back end saying, Hey, I'm sorry. It came out. It just, you know, this is just what I was thinking, but it is, it's, but I tried to create the space where I'm still the CEO and I make final decisions, but I'm going to create a platform where people, especially depending upon what it is, everyone can opine. They can give me their thoughts and their feelings. And then I'm, when I make a decision, I'm going to share with them how my thought process and how I got there. So that the way they at least know that they had been heard, uh, they'd be considered. I take bits and pieces from everybody and I warn them I can't take it all, you know, but I'm going to at least give everyone an opportunity to be able to give me their their thoughts and feelings. As long as you understand, though, that I have to be the final arbiter or else we'll be inert. Nothing will get done. Right. And in the end, people come back to you. <laughs> you're, if it fails, it's my fault. <laughs> if it bombs, it's my fault. So I'm like, listen, guys, if it doesn't work, <laughs> you don't have to worry. You don't have to shoulder that burden. I do. So just relax. Right. <laughs> I got this. Right. But I think to your point, I mean, part of this has to do with having, um, you know, this wide age continuum, which is wonderful, um, but also understanding that I think some people are coming out of college if they are going to college um, and maybe wherever they have, what, wherever they've been before they come to your organization, they have not had some of these experiences of how to show up at work, if you will, right? Because nobody's really showing anybody how to show up at work. That, that is not done. Um, I have a question here um, from someone who was asking Pamela about, let's see, is there any official research or report on what Coca-Cola has been doing around DEI internally? Yes. Um, um, there, there's a lot of uh, research on it, and you know, and also I, I devoted a chapter to it in my book. And what um, part of what I I refer to is they had a task force for five years. It actually stayed in effect for an extra year. So for six years, this task force was filing reports on all of the steps that were being taken, and and like you heard, you saw the conversations that were happening the pushback on um, like they had an opening and there were no uh, 
people of color in the pool. So there, there was a lot of tension and then there was the breakthrough, but all of it was documented or lots, a lot of it was documented. So you can actually see uh, the steps that were taken to get them to a point where, where they could uh, disrupt those patterns of bias. Mm -hmm. okay. Great. And, can I, and can I just um, say something about what Audra just said? If only leaders took that position when it came to the success or failure of diversity, that it the buck really does stop with the leadership. Mm -hmm. But I'm not seeing that kind of ownership um, of leaders of the diversity issue. I see them kind of farming it out. And if it, if it doesn't work, it's, it somehow never gets back to the leader <laughs> to take responsibility for the success or the failure. Right, that's a really great point, excellent. Um, from where you're sitting now, Ronnie, again, very different from where you used to sit. Um, how are you seeing uh, people take a responsibility, if you will, for the work? So again, I've seen some very, I would say bold emails come out of the Illinois Department of Human Services in the last several months, and it's been wonderful, but it is so different than anything we've seen before. And um, how, how was that balance made in terms of, um, you know, we often talk about meeting people where they are and bringing them forward. Um, I think it, I, I'm gonna just assume that it's a much more heavier lift when you're in government and you have these other structures and systems in place that you have to work around, work within, but you're still, it is, it is clear to me that um, there's very much a, an intention to move this work forward. And even when we were going back and forth with some of our clients about whether or not the executive order uh, from uh, the White House would impact our work, there were several people who were adamant that they would not stop if you paid them to stop. Like we're doing this work one way or the other and we will deal with whatever we have to in terms of the pushback on it. Um, what are you seeing from, from your vantage point? Yeah, the, um, the, this is, Rennie, is actually the latter, which you just described, which is we're just not going to stop. We, of course, we're gonna be an ethical and legal organization, but that, you know, if you look at, if you just look at the body of the, you know, who, the folks that are within the governor's office, you know, we've got Sol Flores, we've got Juliana Stratton, you know, these are very powerful and influential and, you know, great leaders, women of color that are very committed to, you know, diversity, equity and inclusion. So there is this like, you know, can't stop, won't stop kind of approach to this, I think, because of um, just that it's I just feel like we're all like it's integrated in ourselves. And I and I do feel a so affirmed in state government. I have not worked for a, a, a woman of color um, in my entire career. And so I have most of all of my career, all of my paychecks. Well, yeah, not with women of color. So in my, all my paychecks have come from most of them from nonprofits that are about disability rights or disability um, justice. And um, this is the first time that I've worked for a person, a woman of color. And, and that's in, in, and, and so that sort of affirmation every, every morning that we have a meeting, um, and every time I send in a report about our progress, every time I need to get feedback, there are um, folks that I think have a lived experience that um, I've never, um, you know, never had before. Now, the disability piece is, an, is another angle. And often I think, like, it's interesting you're talking about the generation component. 
So I do feel as a Gen Xer that I was for other people of color with disabilities, the leader, like the person um, that had that ability to have that intersectionality and hear what was being said. And then also I did have the burden too of translating for all of these white leaders with disabilities um, about what we're trying to say and what I had actually been either silenced about or got really like, you know, like described as angry about um, and then got, you know, punishment or consequences or repercussions um, because I was expressing, you know, um, the need for a race equity lens in the disability community. Um, so that, you know, there, there's a balancing act that I think was going on too, but I do feel a, a, a strong commitment just from the very top. Wonderful. Well, I'll just say this. Um, I, I don't have to say this, but the day that we, as I said, we were very privileged and honored to do uh, trainings for the 40 uh, agencies, state agencies and directors and, and the executive team at the governor's office. And uh, one day the governor was on, introduced us and stayed for the entire session. And that sends a signal you know, uh, no matter, you know, good, bad, or indifferent of how you may feel about how someone is governing, there's, that sends a signal when your CEO is in the workshop all day. And I, I guess I feel like if the governor can do it, <laughs> there are many other people that can do that as well. Um, so here's a question. Um, let's see, they love the panel. And for those of us who are committed to this work, but are very much alone, and alone is in caps, in our attempts to move it forward at our institutions, what should we do? How do we get this work moving forward in a respectful and productive way? Um, so I'd love to hear from you about that question. I think the data, as we've talked about before, can be very important. Um, that is why we rely so heavily on data and why we won't start any engagement without the data, because what we find, and I don't know if you've seen this as well, Sean, is that people often aren't surprised, but it matters that there was a third person collecting the data and not someone inside their organization. Um, and so the data makes a, makes a difference. And that's what we've seen as being helpful in moving it along. And that's why I said this morning, you have to listen to your staff. Listen to your staff. What have you you've seen, Sean? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that has been really positive for us to hear is that people are having their leadership team read the reports, for instance, and then use that as a jumping off point for ongoing discussion. And you know, I think the sort of model of a small learning group can be really useful. And I think for people who are very much the sort of um, change agents inside of an organization, particularly if they're not in a position of power to uh, sort of direct change, but are having to sort of lead from behind, you know, that is a difficult role to be in, right? And I just want to acknowledge that and also thank people for still having the leadership, the informal leadership to still push inside of their organizations um, because it involves basically reckoning with people who hold power in organizations who probably don't wanna have these conversations. And I think the thing that has to, that organizations have to reckon with is like, who's, um, Whose comfort are we going to privilege? Whose comfort are we going to prioritize? And I think far too often the comfort that has been prioritized is people at the top of the organizational hierarchy, the people with white privilege it, you know, as a part of their background. Um, and the reality is these conversations end up being difficult 
particularly for people who have not had them previously. Uh, and they're also difficult because they're taxing for people of color who are like, do we have to keep having this conversation? Right. Uh, and so it's sort of difficult and discomforting for uh, all around. Um, and so, you know, I think some internal assessment of like, do you have the sort of willingness to continue pushing uh, inside of the organization? I, that I think you have to build up that kind of support. And if you can't get the support from other peers inside of the organization, find the support from other people who are similarly situated in other organizations and build the kind of internal, informal community across organizations that'll help you keep pushing. And can I, can I just add something to that, Mary? I think people um, who are really isolated in, the, in these institutions who don't have the support for that kind of work, the good news is the, that job, uh, that skill set is now in demand. It's one, like there, there are more job openings now for chief diversity officers and people who are doing diversity work than, than at any other time in our history. And so you can, you know, take advantage of the opportunities that now exist for people to do this work. I, I would not um, advise someone who's in a hostile situation or a place where there's no support for their work because that's that's frustrating and that that can impact your health, you know, your yes. your, your mental stability and 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 why not apply those those positive energies uh, to to in a place where you can actually get the job done. So I I would suggest that you look um, to to um, go to a place where where your your efforts would would be welcomed. And I think increasingly there are more places that at least say that they they want to do this work. If you go on the Indeed site, you'll see hundreds of of openings for people who who are working in the diversity field. That is true. And of course it is important to make sure that, as you know now, everybody wants to do this work. So, so it is important to make sure that people actually understand uh, how to do it and, 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 and how it, it can work as you are getting more involved uh, with it. We have one question here that we wanna make sure we answer uh, because I think it's really true. And I think this is you know, what I love about the work that we get a chance to do is that we have to constantly check ourselves as well. Um, and this person says, I have not heard any mention of ageism during the conversation and it is often not spoken about. Do you have any light to shine on that issue? Older adults in general have been extremely hard hit by the pandemic. They are old and they're going, oh, and the quote is, <laughs> this is the quote that they're old and they're gonna die anyway. So what difference does it make? Which is, oh my goodness. Um, what, what would you say to someone who, um, yes, has had these experiences or is concerned, um, and I think it's similar to sort of ableist language, right, that we are not doing enough. We're not doing enough. I mean, um, we have to do more across all of these, uh, across the continuum, if you will, right? And so what would you say in particular, though, about ageism and how we might address concerns about that not being lifted up? Well, I do think it is uh, certainly an area where there's, it's sort of clear that there's discrimination, right? So, I mean, uh, in terms of job seekers um, and the sort of the problems in terms of like on, ongoing unemployment. I also think that some of the age or generational tensions that are playing out in organizations are also complicated, particularly within racial communities, right? Because 
you know, as one of the things that we heard was like particularly millennials of color sort of feeling like those sort of older leaders are maintaining inequitable practices or, you know, like providing cover for white leaders to operate in ways that are problematic. And, you know, while those critiques in some cases are reflections of reality and maybe legitimate, we also have to recognize that many people of color had a much longer um, or were delayed from moving into leadership roles, right? And so part of what's happening is like people just got into these leadership positions as people, of, as older people of color, 10, 15 years behind the opportunities opening up for their white peers. And now they're at a moment where they're trying to hold on to the, those leadership roles and be, get experiencing this pushback particularly from younger leaders who are sort of saying it's time to pass on the reins. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it's all of these things are complicated. And I just think we have to be thinking in a very nuanced way about these forces. Yeah, and it is very complicated and it depends on the field. Like in journalism, a, a lot of um, my former colleagues have been pushed out as newsrooms have downsized because they're hiring my students, you know, for what they were paying. Um, you know, an older journalist, they can get two journalists, they can get three journalists. So ageism is definitely, um, you know, in flowering in, in a lot of different fields. But in, in higher ed, where I'm also a part, you know, people do tend to hold on to positions for a very long time, which is creating a situation where a, long, a, a lot of uh, young scholars of color or otherwise just cannot get in because, People hold on to these jobs well into their 70s and 80 if they can. So it, it depends on which field that you're in and, and how it's expressed. Well, there's so much more to say, but there is so little time, as you all know. And um, I just want to just say, if you could just say one thing as we close, and I'm going to throw it back to uh, Geneva in just a moment, what would you say in terms of... Um, uh, advice or a word that you would say describes this moment right now that we're in, right? In light of everything that's happened, uh, in particular, maybe in the last week, but um, what what is your word of encouragement or or what would you leave uh, some of our, um, our, our listeners uh, with? Where do you want to start? I will start with you, Pamela. <laughs> you know, I think, you know, despite all of the difficulties that we faced throughout history and particularly over the summer, you know, with the killing of George Floyd, with the, the, the heightened, um, you know, uh, attention to racial injustice. I think this is a moment that truly is pregnant with possibilities for change, because I think for so long, we've had to try to convince people that there was racial inequality, you know, up until like four years ago, many people were insisting that we were post-race. Now I think a, a, a much um, greater proportion of the population is now conceding that we do have these racial problems. And that, that's a huge um, jump because now we don't have to spend time like trying to convince people. Now we can look at what we can do to actually move the needle on, on some of these issues. So, uh, so I would say it's, it's a, it's a, hopeful time. All right. Ronnie, what would you say? Um, I, I would, my word is, um, is surge. So just power forward. Yeah. Okay. I love it. Audra? Um, I would say my word is kind of perseverance. 
it's kind of tough to get through this time, but people have to persevere and understand that we are we are moving the needle forward as as incrementally as it may feel. Excellent. And Sean? My word would be grace, uh, both for ourselves and for our colleagues in organizations that where the dynamics may feel fraught. Mm -hmm. Michelle, bring us on home. Um, I'm going to say reckoning. 2020 has been a reckoning and I echo what Pamela had said. It is, it is rife with opportunities to align all of our organizations in a way that maybe whether we're white led or BIPOC led, we had difficulties in the past. I will also wanna leave the audience with just a reminder that racial equity is a set of principles that you embed in your organization. And often I feel like that's forgotten and it's generally just down to demographics or diversity. It's really embedded throughout every aspect of your operations and your programs at your organizations. And so I just wanna make sure that we also end on that note. Absolutely. And I, I appreciate you saying that because that, that's one of the things we, we help people do. It's just not about your programs or one aspect of your organization. It should be clear that you have uh, centered uh, racial equity in your organization. And so thank you, thank you, thank you. So appreciate you uh, spending some time with us this afternoon. Thank you so much. Thank you again for listening to this special episode of Gathering Ground. And thank you to everyone who made the Ready Symposium possible. A special thanks to everyone at the Morton Group team. And in particular, I do want to give a shout out to Geneva Porter and Vince Pagan. Gathering Ground is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you listen to podcasts. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to receive a notification when a new episode is released. Thank you for joining us. I'm Mary Morton, and this has been Gathering Ground. Until next time.